All right, Jesse, last week's murder map where X marked the spot still has my head spinning. Who we got this week? When dismembered body parts are discovered in matching suitcases in Chesapeake Bay, authorities rush to ID the unfortunate soul and his killer. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about forlorn love, evil plans, and of course, murder most foul. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed the show, please love slash murder a five star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. Okay, Andy, we have a really twisty, turny, interesting case today. So I think I'm just going to jump right in without further ado. Let's do it. Wednesday, May 5th, 2004, wasn't the day Chris Henkel was hoping for. At 5.45 a.m. that morning, he had picked up his friends, the Connors, Dee and son and daughter Sam and Claire, to go on a fishing trip. The weather report had predicted sunny skies, but the day was foreboding chilly and dark with an angry sea. Even though early May was the start of trophy fishing season in Chesapeake Bay, the fish were not biting. Despite that, in some occasional rainstorms, the kids, 12-year-old Sam and his little sister Claire, were having a blast. So much so that when Sam spotted a medium-sized green suitcase bobbing in the water, he convinced Chris to haul it aboard. It's pirate's treasure, yelled Sam as he unzipped the waterlogged case, revealing thick plastic bags. Uh Uh-oh. Chris felt a sense of unease in the pit of his stomach. But before he could say anything, Sam tore open the plastic bags to reveal two pale, hairy legs severed from the knees down. The child screamed, and the whole boating party recoiled. Can you even imagine, Andy? No. And also, why always in the plastic bags? I think it's just people have garbage bags on hand usually. So that just seems like a convenient way to dispose of unwanted body parts. Because it's not the first time that's been the situation, you know? Usually they're wrapped up before they go in the suitcase. Also, every time you see trash on the side of like the highway, don't you always think it's a body? Oh, yeah. (laughs) 100% (laughs) of the time. I also don't think I would ever open a suitcase because I would just assume there was body parts in it. Yeah, yeah. Especially I have a feeling after this story. Yeah, exactly. This is not (laughs) our first dismemberment suitcase. Remember episode seven? That was the bin. That was not a suitcase. That was a bin. Kind of ruined container store for me forever. (laughs) Well, this is going to ruin Kenneth Cole reaction suitcases for you forever. Oh, no. Okay, so it took authorities two hours and three repeated 911 calls to collect the suitcase and remains because they thought it was a prank at first. So they finally get the suitcase to the medical examiner. Four days later, a young woman graduate student was being a good Samaritan, picking up litter at the Fisherman Island Bird Sanctuary when she discovered another deep green Kenneth Cole reaction suitcase. Oh, no. To her horror, enclosed was the torso of a white male, his head and arms still attached. Bullet holes were clearly visible in his forehead and back. The medical examiner would later find one in his abdomen as well. When 
On May 16th, 11 days after the first suitcase was discovered, boaters Carl and Linda Stevens found the third and final Kenneth Cole reaction suitcase floating off the Chesapeake Bridge Tunnel's second island. This time, they knew better than to open it. Yeah. Also, I have a couple questions for you real quick. One, do you think that they bought the entire Kenneth Cole series, like the collection (laughs) of like the different sizes, like the family pack? They did. They 100% had the family pack. This was a whole matching set. Oh my God. And then two, do you think this affected Kenneth Cole's sales at all? You know, they say all PR is good PR, but I just feel like this isn't the correct. This is definitely a question from a fashion retailer. It's very clear (laughs) what your business is, Andy, (laughs) because I did not even think about the bottom line for Kenneth Cole over here. Man, I feel like this can't be good. Well, this also wasn't good for Virginia Beach because we're approaching Memorial Day and they did not want people who are tourists who are coming for Memorial Day into the summer to enjoy all of the beauty of Virginia Beach to be worried about body parts washing up while they're enjoying their holiday. Yeah, and also like all the Memorial Day sales at JCPenney <laughs> and at, Bloomingdale. Back at Kenneth Cole. We're back at Kenneth Cole. I think I Kenneth just, Cole is doing I, all right. I feel for them. I mean, it's not a very easily marketable audience. Like there's just not enough serial killers where that can be like a positive thing. No. So Carl and Linda were very smart. They already had been aware of what was going on because it had been in the media that if you did see a suitcase, do not open it. It most likely will contain body parts. So they called the cops and this time the Virginia Beach Marine Patrol tied the suitcase to the back of their patrol boat and dragged it to the marina. Back on shore, a badly decomposed and waterlogged midsection was found, cut meticulously at the waist and above both knees. The coroner now had a full set of remains and a full set of Kenneth Cole reaction luggage, but not much else to go on. Based on the clean-cut, almost military precision of the dead man's haircut and the high military population of the area, they decided to send out his DNA to match with all the military databases, but nothing came back. The investigators were determined to find the man's identity. I mean, they were just thinking, this is such a devastating death. We like owe it to this person to find out who his killer was, to find out who he was, to give him a proper burial, of course. Yeah, they don't even know who he is at this point, right? Exactly. So they release a police sketch of the man's face to the media in hopes that somebody would recognize him. And lo and behold, someone did. Who was this man? Who could have wanted him dead? And most importantly, what kind of sick psychopath could carve up a human being like a joint of beef? Well, let's find out today on Love Murder. I feel like a butcher could. A butcher could or a doctor, maybe somebody in the medical field. Or someone who has a farm. Oh, no, not my farmers. Don't come for my farmers. So in order to find out who this man was and who his killer was, we have to discuss some people. So let's talk about some people here. Melanie Slate is going to be our first person we're going to talk about. And she was born on October 18th, 1972 in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Not too long after her birth, her biological dad took off. And only four years after that, he died of liver cancer. So Linda, Melanie's mother, moved in with her parents, taking her tiny bereft daughter with her. She found a job as a secretary at a Manhattan computer company where she ended up beginning a passionate affair with her married boss, a man named Michael Caparraro. 
the worst part of this affair was that he would use his son, Michael Jr., as cover while he conducted the affair. He would essentially, like, Ew. be like, I'm taking the kid to the park. And then he would, like, go and have Michael Jr. play with Melanie while they had sex. Ew. So the affair went on for several years until Michael Jr. finally spilled the beans to his mother and the couple divorced, paving the way for Michael to move in with Linda and have a child. And they had a little boy they named Christopher. So during this period, Melanie was blooming from an adorable little girl with big wide set eyes and thick curly brown hair into a beautiful young woman with gorgeous bone structure and a pixie-like face and frame. And I know, guys, I always talk up the looks of the people on this, but Melanie is actually very, very pretty. (laughs) I'm telling you, she really is. So Michael Jr., who eventually became Melanie's stepbrother when their parents did get married, said that Melanie was promiscuous and manipulative growing up. Perhaps she learned from her parents that lying and cheating was okay if all's well that ends well, you know? Yep. That's what he suggested. I grew up with Melanie, explained Michael Jr. She could always get you to do whatever she wanted. She always got her own way and could talk people into anything. And that is a quote that was given from Michael Jr. to author John Glatt in the book that is our primary source today, To Have and to Kill by John Glatt. Great book. I also listened to a podcast called Direct Appeal, which we'll talk more about later, which is a deep dive on this specific case. And I used an ABC News article titled Suitcase Killer Defends Innocence from Inside of Prison by Sean Dooley and Haley Yamada. And there's a 2020 about this case that came out last September. So I really went in on this one. This one is like, it's a tricky little dismemberment story, I got to tell you. So that's what Michael Jr. said about Melanie. Michael also said that Melanie had affairs with two teachers while she was in high school, which frankly is criminal on the part of the teachers. And if it is true, only reflects on Melanie insofar as that she was victimized at a developing age, clearly. That's effed up. This is probably the 80s? Yeah, because she was born in 1972. So nobody cared. Especially if they're like, she was already in high school. Like they just didn't care about teenage girls. So regardless of what was going on in her personal life, and we also don't know, I mean, this is what Michael Jr. is saying, her stepbrother, but I don't know what her life was really like at this point. She doesn't discuss this in her own personal story. Melanie excelled easily at school, eventually graduating in the top 5% of her high school class and enrolling at Rutgers University with a double major in math and psychology. After earning her degree, Melanie decided she wanted to become a nurse. She really wanted to give back and help people. While preparing for nursing school, she moved back at home with her stepfather and mother and got a job waiting tables at a seafood restaurant. She had been dating a fellow server named Brian Gerber for about a year when he introduced her to his new roommate, Bill McGuire, who worked at a nearby Red Lobster. Within days of their first meeting, Melanie dumped Brian for the charming stranger, which must have made the roommate situation very weird. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think you'd have to get a new roommate. <laughs> like, I'm going to have to find a new place. I stole your girlfriend. So let's talk about Bill. Bill McGuire was eight years older than Melanie and had had a pretty rough early life. He was the youngest of three kids and the only boy, so very much the baby of the family. His parents, Bill Sr. and Ruth, sounded like a disaster couple, like the type of couple that keeps breaking up and making up. They got divorced and remarried to each other several times, it said in the book. What? Yeah, so they couldn't get it together. The family home was chaotic and fraught, and they don't ever 
confirm this, but it, it looks like at some point the eldest sister, Nancy, accused Bill, the dad, of molesting her, even voluntarily choosing to put herself into foster care to get out of the home. Wow. Yeah, so I would tend to believe that nobody chooses to go into no. foster care. No. no, it has to be really bad. So uh, eventually Bill Sr. left for good. I'd like to think at that point the mom kicked him out, you know, for good. And middle sister Cindy got married and left the home also very young. She got married like in her teens still. And this left Bill alone with his mother. He apparently found the relationship unbearable. And I don't know what type of abusive his mom may have been, but it was something like his sister said, like when he was the only one left in the house, she kind of turned all of her attention on him and it was in not in a good way, you know? So he ran away to live with middle sister Cindy when he was 15 years old. And eventually he became too much of an unruly teen for Cindy to handle. So Bill was bounced first to his high school coach and eventually was taken in by his best friend, Lenny Polsky's family. So he's just having a really hard time. It's very an unstable upbringing being bounced yeah. around like this. Yeah. So it was there that he met Lenny's little sister, Marcy. Marcy was 12 at the time and she had this huge crush on Bill who, of course, Bill like didn't even notice because he's a normal teenage boy who's a high schooler and not a creep. So you wouldn't notice a 12 year old, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and after graduation, Bill joined the U.S. Navy. It was there at basic training that Bill met John Rice, who had become his lifelong best friend. In 1984, both men were transferred to Norfolk, Virginia to serve on the USS Kitty Hawk and aircraft supercarrier. During this period, he returned home occasionally where he was struck by how grown up Marcy had become, now a senior in high school, and the two began to go on dates when he was home. Eventually, Bill, John Rice, and another friend who became like a lifelong best friend, Jim Carmichael, were stationed on the USS America, which docked in Norfolk as well. John married his longtime love, Sue, and when Bill saw the marital benefits, which included nicer, larger quarters and a nearly doubled paycheck, he decided to propose marriage to Marcy, who is barely out of high school at this point. So he's like, this is great. This seems like a deal. Like all I have to do is get married and I get more money and I get a nicer place to stay. But it was doomed to failure from the start. He was only 23 himself. She's a teenager, literally. So they're both really young. They didn't know what they wanted from life or each other. And less than nine months into the marriage, Bill admitted to his friends that he had never really loved Marcy and that he had made a terrible mistake. Oh, no. Don't marry people for the benefits because they're never worth a bad marriage. <laughs> no, it's, oh, God. In 1990, Bill left the Navy and moved himself and Marcy to Edison, New Jersey, so he could study pharmacy at Rutgers. The couple worked in restaurants to make ends meet. By 1992, Bill finally ended his marriage to Marcy, telling Jim Carmichael that he had stayed in the marriage for as long as he could, and he believed that Marcy was now mature enough to take care of herself. It was also around this point when he moved to New Jersey that he started making frequent trips to Atlantic City. Bill was a very, very good gambler. Like he was somebody that could actually go and make thousands of dollars. Like count cards and stuff? I don't know how he did it. They never said, and I don't really know exactly what his game was. It was just that all of his friends said that he was actually a meticulous gambler. Like he would always come out ahead usually. And he was definitely somebody that they tagged as like a high roller. Like he would get comps and he would get free places to stay. And like they knew him at like certain venues in Atlantic City. 
And that would become like a trend of his, like later on when he gets remarried and, you know, they do friend stuff together. Like a lot of the friends would go on trips like with this couple and, and go to Atlantic City together. They basically separate. They're not technically divorced. And they spend the next two years like kind of in a limbo. Like Marcy's trying to get Bill back. He doesn't want to be with her. He's moved out, but they're not technically divorced. So all of that back and forth came to a halt in 1994 when Bill met the beautiful Melanie Slate and fell immediately under her spell. So Bill and Melanie completely hit it off from the start. She had the intellect he was looking for in a partner and he was really funny and quick and witty and had this like sense of humor that she was really attracted to. So they begin to carry on a whirlwind romance, but Bill didn't tell Melanie about Marcy and their like kind of lingering marriage. So Marcy finds out about Melanie. Marcy's still legally married to Bill. So she seeks out and confronts Melanie and Melanie didn't know about her. So the two of them together go and confront Bill. Like we know about each other, the gigs up dude. And according to Marcy, when she and Melanie confronted Bill about his two timing, Bill actually chose Marcy. Like he was like, uh, you're still my wife. I have to like pick you at the end of the day. But Marcy wouldn't take him back. Like she was done with his shit. So Bill then begged Melanie to stay with him. And Marcy told Melanie, like, he's going to do this to you too. Like you should run. And instead, Melanie chose to stick with Bill. And they embarked on a relationship that would last the rest of his life, but would never run smoothly, which I can kind of see because it started really poorly. If you start a marriage in infidelity or like a whisper of it, even if he was already separated, it's really hard to yeah. get on track, you know? Yeah. So Melanie enrolled in nursing school where she became friends with a man named James Finn who harbored a gigantic unrequited crush on her. Melanie was upfront about her relationship with Bill, but spent most of her time complaining about her boyfriend and detailing the out-of-control fights they would have. So even very early on, in their relationship, they were fighting. And that Christmas, Melanie gave James Finn a copy of the popular Stephen King novel, Dolores Claiborne, which is about a woman who gets her abusive husband drunk and murders him. Shit. Uh-huh. And on the inside page, she wrote the following inscription. Now here is a story of a woman with true strength and wisdom. You can learn a lot from her. I did. Love, Melanie. Oh, my God. Yeah, talk about a little bit of foreshadowing. So Melanie graduated second in her class at nursing school and accepted a position as an RN at an infertility clinic at a New Jersey medical center. Her coworkers noted that she was extremely proficient in her job and she had a biting, sometimes sarcastic, razor sharp wit. This is a trend of Melanie's. Everyone who worked with her said she was an amazing nurse. Okay. She's really, really good at her job. Her relationship with her boyfriend, Bill, however, was slightly perplexing. Despite never saying a single good word about him, she eagerly discussed getting engaged and married to him eventually. So, like, she complained about him all the time to her coworkers, but at the same breath, she would be like, but we're probably going to get married. Oh, God. Yeah, so everyone's like, oh, this doesn't seem healthy. In late 1997, her wishes came true when Bill proposed to Melanie and the two began planning a June 1999 Catholic wedding spectacular. They even enrolled in pre-canna courses at the Catholic Church, which is essentially that like premarital counseling. And especially in the Catholic Church, it's like in instruction on how to have a religious marriage or just a good marriage. And of course, family planning 
because they don't believe in birth control. Despite her religious courses, Melanie reportedly had affairs with at least two doctors during this time. (laughs) So religious. So religious. According to a fellow nurse and friend, once when the two women were attending a conference in San Francisco and another like with a doctor that they worked with together in New Jersey. But the nurse said that this was like a real like Grey's Anatomy situation. I guess like all the doctors and nurses were like sleeping together and popping in and out of each other's beds. So I always thought that doctors were probably too busy for that, but I guess it happens. I don't understand how they have time for that shit. No, I I mean, I guess it's like a stress relief. It's a very high stress atmosphere. So potentially even worse than that infidelity was that Melanie went off birth control and began treating herself to fertility medication without telling Bill in the months leading up to their wedding, which is a huge no-no. I think that's even worse. That's so deceiving. It's so bad. Don't do that. So four months before the wedding, Melanie got pregnant, but she did miscarry. And though Bill grieved with her, he was like a little upset that she had gotten pregnant to begin with because she was telling him she was on birth control. So he's like, this is a tragedy. And like, I really want kids with you. And like, I'm so sad as well. However, can you please not get pregnant before the (laughs) wedding? Because they were having like this big Catholic wedding and, you know, they were putting a lot of money into it. And also like, he's at this point in school and he's like still serving and he's trying to like get his life together. So she has a great job and she's very settled, but he doesn't feel like, you know, you have to feel really good in your career and your financial state before you have kids. And he doesn't feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, let's not do this. And she completely told him that she wouldn't. And then she did. And she ended up getting pregnant again in April of 1999, two months before the wedding. Wow. Yeah. So Bill, of course, was still troubled at the timing, but Melanie seemed to delight in it. She even arranged to get an ultrasound at 7.30 in the morning on the day of the wedding so she could display the sonogram photo at the reception, which struck some guests as odd. Yeah. It's also, I think, for Bill, too, like, he really wanted the wedding to be about them, and now it's about the baby, you know? You need to have, like, your time together, like, of the two of you. Yeah, I'm so grateful that I had so much time with Nathaniel before we got pregnant, you know? And you did, too. I mean, you and Dan had years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we had two lifetimes to (laughs) hang out before, before Little Echo, so. Exactly. Yeah. So, and also because it could have been prevented too. Like there's a lot of times like things can accidentally happen, but like Melanie very purposely did this, you know? And so in the video footage that you can see on the 2020 episode, Melanie is not, you can't tell she's pregnant at all, but she looks beautiful in a very nineties poofy dress way. She's like, has this big poofy dress. And then she does the the nineties thing where it's an updo, but with like the little tendrils hanging down. Yeah. Yeah. And the first dance was to From This Moment On by Shania Twain. Wow. And they even have, (laughs) they even have footage of all of the guests doing a conga line to Ricky Martin's Live in La Vida Loca. (laughs) Wow. Uh It's a very, also very like white person 90s thing to do. Yes. So like I said, Melanie is doing great in her career at this point. So just before the wedding, she had been asked to join an elite group of doctors who began a private fertility clinic known as Reproductive Medicine Associates. And she did great here. I mean, everyone loved her. She was like 
one of the most well-known nurses and everyone relied on her. And she became the breadwinner of the burgeoning family. Well, Bill, like I said, was studying computer science and programming. So he had switched from pharmacy at Rutgers to studying computer science and programming at New Jersey's Science and Technology University while still serving. So, you know, he's just still trying to find his way here. On February 11th, 2000, the couple's first child, Jack, was born. And at this point, their relationship seemed to heal and become smooth, like, for the first time ever. Despite his wish to delay fatherhood, Bill took to it exceptionally well and was absolutely delighted by his baby boy. So things seemed to be looking up for the couple. Bill got a job teaching at his alma mater and was now making $65,000 a year. And he was saving up to buy a house for his family. And Melanie was continuing to excel at RMA and was even getting pay bumps. In July of 2000, a handsome new young doctor joined RMA and the two began to work closely together. In June 2001, however, Bill became frustrated with Melanie when she once again became pregnant without his consent. Oh my God. They're living in a one bedroom apartment at this point and she gets pregnant without his approval with their second child. I was going to say, and if she's on fertility medicine, she could always end up getting multiples, getting pregnant with multiples. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. So in order to make more money for the growing family, Bill started a computer consulting company as well as an additional night job as a computer programmer for the health department. So he would start his teaching job at 7.30 in the morning and not finish his health department job until 11 p.m. Yeah, sounds right, though. He's like doing double shifts. Uh Uh-huh. He's doing everything he can. And he's also doing his consulting job in the middle somewhere there. Yes. So he's just working around the clock and he's doing the best he can, but dear Lord, it sounds exhausting. And they have a toddler at this point too, you know? Meanwhile, Melanie was growing closer to Dr. Bradley Miller, who had been asked to be a partner of the clinic and was now raking in millions. The McGuire's were invited to a lavish Super Bowl party at the Miller's mansion. And Melanie could not help but feel like the Miller's lifestyle was starkly different than her life with Bill in their cramped Edison, New Jersey apartment. So she began to flirt with Dr. Miller, bringing him small gifts for his birthday and Christmas. And is he married? He's married. And he also has a kid around the same age as Jack. By the time Melanie was 38 weeks pregnant and about to go on maternity leave for her second child, something happened that changed the course of their lives forever. While she was resting in Dr. Miller's office, she mentioned that she had a pinched nerve in her neck. He responded by rubbing her shoulders, which turned into a deeper back massage. And as he got lower, the two lost control completely, later both admitting to having oral sex right there and then in his office. 38 weeks. (laughs) That is nine months pregnant. Kill me. I can't imagine... I was, I was not like even having sex with my husband. This, no, I was like eating all of the spicy food and bouncing on a ball. Like, yeah, I was like putting things in my mouth, but they weren't penises. I'll tell you that oh much. Oh my God. <laughs> Come on, guys. Get it together. Also, just goes to show you women can get it whenever they want, apparently. At 38 weeks pregnant, they can get it. Also, that's like so fucked up for Bill and like his kid in there. Yes, I know. Also, they don't say like who was getting what. They just keep saying that oral sex happened. Do you think like maybe he gave it to her or do you think she gave it to him? I think she probably gave it to him. I feel like back then in the 90s, right then, oral sex, like it's always. It was really. <laughs> it was blowjob. It was really having a moment. It was, it was, it was Bill Clinton. 
oral yeah, sex. Exactly. <laughs> that yeah. was like the definition was it was a blowjob. It was definitely a blowjob. Yeah, I don't think I think we're we're more sex positive towards women's bodies, and like we're like now like yeah. oral sex for oral females sex is having a never moment been now. Going down on a thirty-eight week <laughs> pregnant woman, <laughs> a pregnant mother, married mother, so no. many things. Yeah, I can't even believe I asked that question. Of course, it was a blowjob. Still buzzing from the sexy tryst, Melanie gave birth to her second son, a boy named <sighs> Jason, only days later. You think it sent her into labor? <laughs> Maybe. It was all that, all that oral exciting. Sex. All that oral sex. <laughs> After the birth, they moved from their one-bedroom apartment into a spacious three-bedroom townhouse. But despite Bill's happiness, the new baby, and the upgraded digs, the moment Melanie returned from maternity leave, she dove back into a passionate affair with Dr. Bradley Miller that would stretch on for over three years. Wow. Which this doesn't entirely surprise me because she became extremely close to her stepfather and like her parents are like her biggest fan and biggest supporters. And their relationship was an ongoing affair for several years before they got together. So I think that she learned that this was not a bad thing necessarily, you know? Yeah. So they would steal any moment they could to have sex in the office, but also mostly at a sleazy hotel. And Dr. Miller would pay cash to avoid the paper trail. Soon he also purchased them prepaid cell phones so they could converse in private without phone bill evidence of their indiscretion. So although it began in like a very lust-filled moment the two both admit later on that they fell madly in love with each other but you know they have kids they're married this is her boss I mean this is the definition of like don't shit where you eat you know yeah why was she like resting in his room anyway yeah that strikes me as pretty unprofessional yeah so it gets worse though because the reason Melanie had time for all this banging was because Bill was still working three jobs to try to like make money to buy a house. He really, really, really wanted to buy a house before he turned 40. So and so he's up. he's working so hard. And not only that, but during the first year of their affair, Dr. Miller's wife, Sharla, got pregnant with twins. Oh and my God, what a disaster. This is a disaster. It it gets worse because it turns out that one of the twins had Down syndrome. I never knew it was like that, that one of them could have it. Yeah, it was just one. So she has now a toddler and twins, and one of the twins has special needs. And her husband is, instead of helping out at every spare moment, is boinking his help. I would murder him. I would kill him. (laughs) Maybe he's the one who gets murdered. We haven't really, we don't know whose legs were in that suitcase. So no. one thing that was really weird about the 2022 is that both the guy, Chris, who was the Fisher guy who found the first set of suitcases and body yeah. parts and the sheriff who was like the first person on the scene, they both were like, the legs were fresh. Like that was their description of them. That the body part was fresh. They were fresh and hairy. They were fresh and hairy. It was like my brother was in the room when I was watching the 2020. He's like, ew, what are you watching? Who describes a body part as fresh? I was like, I don't know. It's important (laughs) because they hadn't been in the water that long. It's like describing a salad. Well, hopefully your salad isn't hairy. (laughs) Fresh and hairy. Yeah. So they're not 
being good people. But Bill wasn't exactly an angel during this period either. Lonely, overworked, and with an absent wife, Bill had a regrettable one-night stand with a coworker while on a business trip. So it sounds like it was not a fun, like, one-night stand. Like, they had too many margaritas. They just ended up having a tumble in a hotel room. Yeah, but he probably, like, hasn't had sex with his wife in, like, multiple years. So I, like, <laughs> I can't really say I blame the guy. Like, I know, she's I kind busy of... <laughs> giving oral sex to her boss. Like... <laughs> I kind of feel bad for him. She gets like his hot, sexy affair for years. Millionaire doctor. Millionaire doctor. And he gets like a coworker bonk once. And then the coworker like stopped talking to him. It's like a sad, like best Western affair. Like it really is. Buffet. <laughs> you get one coworker bonk and a continental breakfast. Yeah. Because his coworker was like, look, that can never happen again. Like I don't roll with married men. I'm so sorry. Like, also, you guys should go to marital counseling, <laughs> which is just is so like the dagger is when your like one night stand tells you to go to marital counseling. <sighs> so he didn't even get a real affair out of this. So he's treading water and he is desperately looking for some source of happiness, one that clearly his wife had already found in the arms of another man. And at this point, he suggests that they move out of expensive New Jersey and to much more affordable Virginia, where he could easily purchase a nice home and he could be amongst his friends and family. Like he had a, a big support network in Virginia, you know? Expensive New Jersey? Well, <laughs> compared to Virginia, it is. I think anywhere that you can get like driving to New York is expensive, you know? At this point, Melanie said absolutely not. She would not leave her job and she wouldn't leave her affair partner, really. But like what she told him is that she would never leave RMA. And it was, like I said, really important to Bill to own his own home before he turned 40. So he was actually doing well at this point. So they start touring homes. But it's an awkward situation because Melanie wants to get a divorce from him. She's already thinking about divorce. And now they're going to look at all these houses together and planning a future even more of a future together. Is she not communicating that with him? No, she's absolutely not communicating it to them. She's like also telling Bradley Miller at this point that she's definitely going to get divorced and they're making plans for the future. Like he was a little more on the fence than her. So he's like, you get divorced first. I'll get divorced in like a year when the kids are a little bit older. And then a good time after that, we'll end up together. But they wanted a future together. A year doesn't make a difference, Bradley. It does not, Bradley. So eventually, to Bill's delight, they made an accepted offer on a beautiful half million dollar house. Dr. Miller was aghast that Melanie was buying a home with the man she was supposed to be leaving. But she promised him that she was going to stop the sale of the house one way or another. And she intended to tell Bill that she wanted a divorce. So apparently she took to the internet to find a way out. At 5.03 Sunday afternoon, nine days before they were supposed to close on their brand new house, Melanie McGuire went on her home computer. For the next two hours, she conducted 18 searches gathering information. She first Googled how to purchase guns in New Jersey and Pennsylvania before searching for instant poisons, toxic insulin levels, fatal insulin Girlfriend. doses. Fatal <laughs> Girlfriend, clear your cash. I read this to Nathaniel and he was like, incognito window. <laughs> I mean, I know that they didn't have that in 2004, but still. Oh my God. And instant undetectable poisons. 
Then at 541, she typed in the words, how to commit suicide, followed four minutes later by how to commit murder. Yeah. How to commit I don't think that's something you should Google. <laughs> yeah. That's when they really need that book, How to Commit Murder for Dummies. That is totally when they need that book. So like I said in the beginning, I went on a deep dive in this case. It's really, we're about to get into the murder and the specifics of it. And there's a lot of moving parts here. And that is not a joke about the body parts, although (laughs) I just realized that it could be. And the podcast, Direct Appeal, is all about this case. It is like 20 some hours only on this case. And they are defending Melanie as innocent. Are they men or women? The people who- Women. Okay. So they're criminology professors and it's two women. So I'll get into that later. But they defend this as saying it's a PC, like a house PC that she's doing these searches on, saying that Bill could have done these searches. I don't think so. Did you listen to a fair amount of their podcast? I did, yes. So I didn't listen to like the first couple episodes because they were kind of just rehashing their relationship and like talking about, you know, the whole thing. And I knew that part because I'd read the book. I did listen to the interviews because they interview Melanie. She's on the podcast. Wow. Yeah, so she's like calling from prison. They have all these phone interviews with her and she's telling her side of the story. So I'm going to be jumping into the crime soon. And basically the crime as it's listed in the book, John Glatt's book, is kind of what the prosecution says happened. And I will at times interject with what Melanie said happened. And we can decide what we believe. Okay. As the love murder community, we can all decide. (laughs) I knew you were going to do that. I love it. (laughs) Okay, let's keep moving on. And we'll see if you you (laughs) keep that perspective. Okay, so also she afterwards that she did all these Google searching, she emailed her old friend from nursing school to ask him how to obtain a gun. So obviously Bill didn't do that for her. At this point, Melanie was telling him that Bill's behavior was becoming erratic and dangerous. So Jim advises her to get a nine millimeter for her protection, and he even offers to help her obtain a permit. But unbeknownst to Jim, and, you know, he gets actually interviewed for the podcast later as well. Okay. Melanie didn't tell him, but she actually went to Pennsylvania on Monday, April 26, now only two days before the scheduled closing of their new home, and purchased a Taurus 85 small frame revolver, as well as a box of Ultramax wad cutter bullets, which are generally used for target shooting. That same evening, Melanie Googled information about various heavy duty drugs. Different from instant poison. It's like instant oatmeal, but poison. (laughs) Instant death poison. (laughs) At 7.43, she made three searches for insulin shock, followed by one for sedatives, tranquilizers, barbiturates, and nembutal. Then at 8.30, she began investigating the powerful hypnotic sedative, chloral hydrate. Discovered in 1832, chloral hydrate is easily soluble in alcohol. Better known as a Mickey Finn, the date rape drug also played a part in the deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Anna Nicole Smith. Shit. At 842, Melanie Googled the effects of chloral hydrate, learning that when combined with alcohol, it will cause significant drowsiness. Straight after reading this, Melanie got on the Walgreens official website, searching the store locator and looking up opening hours. Oh my God. 
Then investigators believe Melanie McGuire forged an RMA prescription pad for 500 milligrams, five milliliters of chloral hydrate syrup, more than five times the recommended adult dosage. She made it out in the name of Tiffany Bain, a one-time RMA patient whose information was readily available to her on the patient database. Wow. She filled in Bain's correct birth date and home address, but deliberately changed one digit on her phone number in case the pharmacist ran a check. She then signed Dr. Miller's name to it. Guilty. Guilty. So their excuse on the podcast and what Melanie herself says is that she brought her computer home often. And so it would have been very easy for Bill to open up her computer and call in a prescription for himself As because he was a drug doctor? user. Yeah. Come on, girl. Yeah, I was like, that is a stretch and a half. You know I, like, love when things aren't as they seem. But this mm -hmm. is not not as it seems. I mean, I talked to Nathaniel about it because I was talking about this case. And he's like, I am all for podcasters trying to find, like, wrongfully convicted yep. people yep. and bringing attention to the case because God knows that happens all of the time and those people need our help. But he's like, this is not that case. <laughs> Choose a different case. I would think more that Bradley is involved in this as opposed to mm -hmm. Bill. Like, Yeah, but she wouldn't roll on her lover. No. So she's not copying anything that Bradley did in this. So at 8.20, the day of the house closing, Melanie dropped off her two kids at school and then drove 1.4 miles to the Walgreens, dropping off the chloral hydrate prescription at 8.32 and collecting it 18 minutes after. In the podcast, she's like, I could not have had that much time. My kids are very needy. They're very clingy. Like when I drop them off at daycare, it takes me like 10 minutes for each of them to calm them down. And the investigators are like, no, that's bullshit. You could absolutely drop your kids off at daycare and make it the 1.4 miles in 12 minutes. She could still have time to like do the blood pressure machine at CVS while she's waiting. <laughs> <laughs> I've never done that. Do you, have you done that? When I was like a kid and you were waiting at a pharmacy <laughs> for like your cold medicine. Yeah. I used to do it all the time. It scared me. I liked it. I would push it and then I'd pressure on my arm and I'd be like, ow, but then it would go away. <laughs> You're much more adventurous than I am because I was scared of it when I was a little kid. Yes. So by 3 p.m. that day, Bill and Melanie McGuire were the proud owners of a brand new, beautiful half million dollar house. The attorneys recalled that the couple was in good spirits. However, Melanie must have been putting on a show during the closing because she sounded very different indeed to her paramour only minutes later she was reportedly in a panic when she talked to Bradley Miller she informed me that they had closed on the house he would later testify she sounded upset she told me that she didn't know she was going into the closing as someone who just went through this process you know when you're going into your the closing of your home if she was playing like the true like wife role and wasn't involved in the process and was watching the kids like who knows maybe but She's too busy sucking D, man. Yeah, she's too, too busy giving performing oral sex. <laughs> yes. Melanie explained that she thought they were going to discuss the house with their lawyer, but when they walked in, she was surprised that the seller's attorney was present. Then she had started signing the papers with Bill, and it was too late. I became upset and started yelling at her, said Dr. Miller. I said, you should go back in there and rip up the papers. Why do you want to buy a half a million dollar house if you ultimately want to get divorced from Bill? It just doesn't make any sense. A few minutes later, at around 3.30, Melanie called her sister-in-law, Cindy Lagosh, in a totally different frame of mind. She announced that they had closed on the new house, giving Cindy a humorous account of what had taken place. 
I thought it was strange, remembered Cindy. It was odd for her to initiate a phone call, and she recounted some funny story about the closing. Later that afternoon, Melanie called Dr. Miller again. He was in a meeting when his cell phone rang, but he went into another room to take her call. She was on the way home from the closing. He remembered, I could hear Bill in the car. He was on his cell phone, and she just said, don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. At just about 6 p.m. that same day, Bill called his dear friend John Rice in a glorious mood. He was really excited and really jovial. Remember, John, it was awesome. He was so happy that he had achieved the dream that he's had for so many years to buy a house. But after they'd been talking for 10 minutes, Regan, John's pet husky German shepherd, ran out the front door, making him cut the call short. I had to chase after her, said John. I said, Bill, forgive me. I've got to go. He congratulated him again and got off the phone. And it would be the last time John would ever hear his best friend's voice. Oh, no. After Bill got off the phone with John, investigators believe Melanie began to execute her murder plot. Bill opened a bottle of red wine to celebrate. And at some point, Melanie slipped the red colored liquid chloral hydrate into his glass to knock him out. Oh, my God. Uh Uh-huh. At 8 p.m. that evening, Dr. Bradley Miller received a call from Melanie. She said that Bill had drank some red wine and passed out on the couch, but when he woke up, she was going to confront him about the house and ask for a divorce. So brutal. Like, even without a murder happening, like, you close on a house, you're celebrating, and your wife's like, actually, I've been having an affair for three years and I want a divorce. So is that what Bradley said? He testified that? Yes. Okay. He testified that he talked to her at 8 p.m. that evening. Okay. At 6 a.m. the next morning, she messaged Bill's boss from Bill's Blackberry to say that he'd be out sick that day. Bill was still unconscious on the couch at this point when she ushered the children to daycare. She told them to hush because daddy was sleeping. Like the next day. The next morning at like 8 a.m., he was still passed out. Guilty. When she dropped the boys off, she told the daycare director that she was applying for a temporary restraining order as Bill had been violent with her the night before. Temporary restraining order against my unconscious husband. Yes. So she's setting up an alibi at this point. Yeah. She then called Dr. Miller and shakily recounted what she claimed happened the night before. So this is her story. Melanie says that Bill woke up at four in the morning and that they had gotten into a fight about the house. She says that basically he like didn't want the house. Like he was saying like, I've settled for this house. I could have gotten a better house or a bigger house in Virginia. You wouldn't move to Virginia with me. This is what she says happens. But all of his friends and family were like, he would have never said that. He was obsessed with the house. He was so proud of it. He loved the house that they got. Like there's no way he would be like saying this stuff. And they got into a physical fight with Bill reportedly pushing her against a wall and shoving a dryer sheet in her mouth, nearly choking her. And she said this was because they had an ongoing fight about dryer sheets because he thought they were lazy and that she should stand there and mix in the liquid softener instead of using dryer sheets. But I didn't even know they made liquid softener. They do, but this whole thing is ridiculous. Liquid softener does something different from dryer sheets, don't they? I think so. Yeah. It's crazy. She then heard their youngest son crying, who was he was about two at the time. And so she took him into the bathroom and locked the door. She heard moving around the townhouse and then a door slam. And when she came out, Bill was gone. So he's gone, she says. He left us. She asked Dr. Miller to write her a prescription for Xanax because she's so, like, out of it at this point, And he obliges. So she also then takes the next few days off of work. So she tells him, like, I'm scared about Bill. I've got to like figure out a restraining order. I've got to like get my life in order. So I'm going to like take off like the next few days. 
Bill actually had taken off two full weeks at this point because he was, you know, anticipating their move. So they had been packing and like he was going to take off this time. It's his vacation time and he's going to use it to move. So it's a good time for her to kill him because he's not due back at work for a couple weeks at this point. She then made the rounds of calling the kids speech therapist and a couple of her friends to tell them that Bill had walked out on her and that she would be filing for divorce. At that point, she returned home. And no one knows for sure, except Melanie, what happened next. According to Have and to Kill, which I will quote here, this is the events as reconstructed by investigators. So this is what the prosecution decided happened, and this is their timeline. While Bill McGuire lay unconscious on the living room couch, Melanie loaded the Taurus handgun that she had bought two days earlier with wad cutter bullets. She then aimed the powerful 38 Special at her husband's forehead, placed a green throw pillow over the barrel to dampen the noise. They did find threads from the throw pillow on the bullet that they took from his body. Wow. To dampen the noise and pulled the trigger. The flat top cylinder bullet usually used for target practice punched a perfect round hole through Bill McGuire's frontal bone, tearing through his brain before exiting out the back of his head. She then pointed the gun at his lower chest, firing into his abdomen just below his ribcage. The second bullet ripped through his lung before exiting out his back. Then she fired two more bullets into his chest at point-blank range. When the trained nurse was satisfied that her husband was dead, she began the grisly task of disposing of his remains. And with the children in daycare, she and her alleged accomplice would have had hours to dismember the body at their leisure, leaving absolutely no traces of what she had done. My only hole with the prosecution story is that it does kind of hinge on her having help, but they never charge anyone with being the accomplice. So first, she prepared the shower stall in the larger of the two bathrooms on the second floor, hanging old paint-stained drop cloths around it to catch the blood. Then she blocked up the drain to stop any incriminating biological matter from getting trapped there. The shower stall would have provided the perfect environment for her gruesome work, as it meant the cutting could be done near ground level with three walls and a shower door to contain blood splatter. Melanie utilized her medical training to create a controlled environment like a hospital mortuary before making the first cut so it would not end up looking like something out of a horror movie. Ugh, I cannot believe she did this by herself. The prosecution contends that somebody had to help her, potentially. But they never charge anyone. They never walk down that path with an accomplice. So it is, I think, a bit of a loose string that they don't identify who this accomplice is. When she was ready, the undressed Bill, who weighed nearly 200 pounds, they left him only in his underpants, which were heavily soiled as he'd been unconscious for hours. You even said they right there. And that's what they say. Yeah, because they they contend, the prosecution contends that there was help. Then they dragged him into the shower stall, but he was too big to fit lying down. So they placed him in a sitting position with his knees bent. The shower door would close. Melanie then produced a short-bladed reciprocating power saw, plugging it into a power socket in the bathroom. After placing a hospital blanket over it to dampen the sound, she turned it on. She first began cutting straight down through his lower Uh, left knee, front to back. But although the fine-tooth saw easily cut through the femur bone, it slid off the bloody flesh without cutting it. So she then cut through his flesh with a sharp bevel-edged knife. Bill's severed left leg was then bled out before they cut off the right one below the knee in the same gruesome manner. With the lower limb severed, there was more room in the shower stall to operate. Now deduce prosecutors, Melanie or her alleged accomplice, 
pushed Bill's head down to the floor and started sawing through his mid-backbone before hacking through his organs and flesh with a knife. The thighs and lower body were positioned in such a way as to protect the shower fixture from being scratched by the saw. After bleeding out the rest of the body, they began parceling up Bill McGuire's body parts in plastic trash bags. First, they wrapped a blue HCSC medical blanket over his face before they placed a kitchen garbage bag with yellow drawstings over his head and pulled it down over his shoulders and upper torso. Then they fitted a second one around the severed bottom part around his navel, pulling it up until the bags met and tightening the drawstrings. Then they wrapped the head and upper torso in three larger industrial-sized heavy-duty trash bags from a supply the McGuire's had used for moving before taping them shut with blue painter's tape. Then they packaged up the legs in more black trash bags before parceling the middle torso severed at both ends and taping it shut. She was meticulous, New Jersey's assistant attorney general, Patty Prezioso, would later relate. Once the body was cut and bled out in bags, she could have simply surrounded the pieces with bags of ice. Melanie then began to clean the bathroom so no evidence of Bill's dismemberment would be found. She scrubbed and scrubbed the shower area and the bathroom walls until there was no trace of any blood or biological matter. But she forgot to wipe the soles of her shoes. And later, when she placed Bill's BlackBerry and NGIT personal computer in the trunk of his Nissan Maxima, she inadvertently transferred small pieces of his flesh, human sawdust is what they call it, torn from his body by the saw from the treads of her shoes onto the car rug. Gross. Super gross. She spent the rest of the afternoon calling divorce attorneys. She told Dr. Miller she was taking the kids directly from daycare to her parents in Barnegat, New Jersey. I was going to ask where the kids were. Yeah, so the kids never came home. So it's totally feasible that his body parts were still in their home at this point. Yeah. And she took the kids directly from daycare to her parents' house, and she told her parents that the kids were going to stay there for a couple nights. Okay. So they're spending the weekend with the grandparents, and she's off of work. And she also, in a weird way, way I guess this was just to set up her alibi she books two nights at the Red Roof Inn for herself oh yeah so she did stay at that hotel rather than going back home which I don't know if she like wanted to avoid the body parts or she was just setting up an alibi because she said that she was afraid to go home because according to her story Bill had been violent with her So she's like, I want the kids to be away from him. I want to be away from him. I'm staying in a hotel so that in case he comes home, that we're not going to be around each other, you know? After taking a nap, investigators then believe Melanie and an accomplice staged the next part of the cover-up. The Easy Pass transponders were removed from both Melanie's Nissan Pathfinder and Bill's Maxima before Melanie drove Bill's car to Atlantic City with an accomplice following behind in her SUV. The plan was to abandon Bill's car at the Flamingo Motel parking lot, so it appeared that Bill had gone gambling before mysteriously disappearing. At 1241, the parking lot surveillance camera captured Bill McGuire's Nissan Maxima pull up and park. Several minutes later, Melanie's black Pathfinder pulls aside the car just long enough for somebody to get out and get back into the other car. However, the footage was extremely grainy, so they really could not get a a good ID on Melanie from this footage. So Melanie does cop to removing the transponders. She said that she moved the easy pass transponders into the glove compartment because she didn't want Bill to know where she was. So like she thought he could look at the easy pass bill and see like where she was traveling to. And she didn't want him to know. That's what she said. Mm -hmm. 
The following day, Melanie got a temporary restraining order against Bill. Investigators believe this was all a play to set up a narrative around Bill's disappearance. We got into a fight. He assaulted me. He took off, apparently, to Atlantic City, and I took the next steps to protect myself and get a divorce. And it could also be looked at as a preemptive strike to get sympathy. Like, he, you know, he was this abusive monster, and I was so a beaten wife. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Cindy Lagosh, Bill's sister, is desperately trying to reach Bill, who's not answering his phone. So she's like even trying Melanie. She's trying Melanie's parents in desperation because the last thing she knew, her brother closed on his dream home. Yeah. And now he's not answering his phone or talking to her, which is very weird. Saturday night, investigators believe Melanie and her stepfather go back to Atlantic City and Bill's car, where they planted travel pamphlets for Virginia Beach and Atlantic City, as well as a vial of chloral hydrate and a syringe in the glove compartment to make him look like a drug abuser. She also put his BlackBerry and his work computer in the trunk at this point. At 10 a.m. on Sunday, May 2nd, Melanie checked out of the Red Roof Inn and picked up a prescription for Xanax once again at a Walgreens in Edison. She then went home and loaded the body parts into a matching set of Kenneth Cole reaction luggage. There we go. And aggressively cleaned the bathroom, which witnesses said smelled like bleach in a morgue for several weeks afterwards. Yeah, also, the three suitcases were not, like, the complete collection. The investigators later found, like, the matching pieces of luggage still in her possession. The Weekender and the carry-on. <laughs> yeah, she, they had the whole set. Wow. Which also what she said about that, because people were like, wait a minute. You're saying you're innocent, but he's found in literally your suitcases. And she said that maybe Bill took the suitcases with him when he left to go to Atlantic City and that the killers then used the suitcases. Like, oh, good. We're going to kill this guy. And he comes with his own death suitcases. How convenient. Oh, my God. Wow. Yep. That's what they said about that. At 8 p.m. the next day, after dropping her kids off at her parents once again, she headed south for the 330-mile drive down to Chesapeake Bay, a path she and Bill had often traveled to visit friends in Virginia. Eventually, in the wee hours of the deep, dark night, Melanie heaved those three suitcases full of her husband over the ledge of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel and let them freefall the 75 feet to hit the water below. She then stopped at a rest stop to freshen up and made the six-hour trip back to Manhattan where she had lunch with a girlfriend, alibi somewhat established. So here's what happened. She was doing that and she set up a lunch with her friend on this Tuesday. And unfortunately for her, even though she put the Easy Pass transponder in the glove compartment, it pinged in Delaware on what would have been her way back from dumping his body. And then to make matters worse, she realized she pinged in Delaware and she called Easy Pass and tried to get it scrubbed from her record. Girlfriend. Yeah. That makes you look guilty, girl. And so when the investigators are like, yeah, but like, why were you in Delaware at 8 a.m.? That could have completely put you in position to have been coming back from dumping the body. She's like, no, I was furniture shopping because they have no sales tax. So I was going to move to a new apartment because she's not going to live in the house that Bill bought. She wants to get her own apartment and she needs new furniture, she said. Mm -hmm. So she was going furniture shopping and she said, and they're like, okay, so what stores did you go to so we could look at the security footage or did you buy anything, you know, so we have a record of you being there. And she's like, no, because I got there at eight in the morning and it turns out no furniture stores are open at eight in the morning on a Tuesday. And they're like, okay, so you did not check to see if the furniture stores you were going to were available and open at that time. Oh, and she's God. like, 
nope. And then they're like, okay, so did you stay and you waited until they, you know, opened at 10 or whatever? And she's like, no, I didn't stay because I was talking to Brad then. And he was like, I'm doing my Tuesday rounds. And I'm like, oh shit, it's Tuesday. I forgot. I have a lunch plan in the city with my friend, Celine. I have to just turn around and not even go to the furniture stores. Oh my God. Yeah. So then she says she just remembered she was supposed to go to this lunch. And instead of like, if it was me and you, I would be like, Andy, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm in Delaware. You know, we lived in the same place. I'm in Delaware. I drove all the way here. I have to go buy some furniture. Clearly, it was very important to me. Can we schedule lunch another day? You know? Oh, my God. <laughs> but she didn't. Because none of this happened. You know, she was just driving back and setting up an alibi. And it's important that she sets up the alibi. So she says, when in between like dropping my kids off at my parents and going to lunch in Manhattan, was I able to get all the way to Virginia and dump these body parts? So she drives all the way to Manhattan where they have lunch at a Red Lobster in Times Square. Are you serious? Like, guys, I'm not hating on Red Lobster. Like, Lobster Fest for life. but. If you are in New York City, eat anywhere else but a Red Lobster or another chain location. It is a wonderful city full of culinary delights. <laughs> of Red Lobster in Times Square. That seems oh, like, oh my, God. my God. Oh my God. Isn't that where her and Bill met though? He was, he was a server at Red Lobster. Maybe there was like some poetic closure there also the prosecution say like because the defense is like why wouldn't she just dump his body like anywhere else like new jersey's surrounded by water you know why would she go all the way to chesapeake bay but the prosecution was like maybe it was a kind of like a fuck you to bill like you want to be in virginia you're in virginia i i know that's yeah. crazy and then drove all the way back to new york city to eat at red lobster <laughs> yes yes 100 percent. so just like lies, dead body suitcases have a way of getting discovered. And thus, we are back at the beginning of our sordid tale. So the police released the police sketch of Bill's face to the media in Virginia, and Sue Rice spots it and immediately identifies Bill, of course, because he was the best man in their wedding. This is, you know, she's married to his best friend. She also had been trying to reach him after her husband, John, hadn't been able to connect with him since the day of the closing. She wanted to congratulate him, too, because she knew what a big deal this was. And I think so he was already, like, already top of mind. And then she saw the police sketch and she's like, holy shit, that's Bill. After John and Sue called in to report that the John Doe was potentially Bill McGuire, Virginia State Police ran his name and discovered that he had been arrested for reckless driving in his 20s. So they had his fingerprints on file. They processed the fingerprints on the hands in the suitcase against the ones on file and bada bing, bada boom, they got a match. Shit. Yep. Immediately, suspicion was cast on Melanie McGuire, the dead man's wife who hadn't reported her husband missing to the authorities and who had also been dodging calls from Bill's friends and family. Like, so she's acting real suspicious right away. So she called all those people and set up all of that alibi and did all of that plan but didn't report him missing. Didn't report him missing and didn't tell his like closest loved ones everything that was going on. Like it was, I, she eventually told his sister, Cindy, but only after Cindy called like her parents were literally trying to track him down through everybody. And then she's like, yeah, actually the night of the closing, he got violent with me and I'm leaving him. So I don't know where he is. And she just like got off the phone. Wow. Mm-hmm. 
Bill's car is discovered eventually in Atlantic City. So Virginia was handling the case, but then they get the security footage of Bill's car. It gets towed and they find it and they see that what looks like it could be Melanie is caught moving it, of course. So at this point, they relinquish the case to New Jersey because they're like, clearly the crime happened in New Jersey. Yeah. And you guys deal with this mess, essentially. Yeah. So Melanie is alarmed when the media reports that a suspect was seen on camera moving the victim's car. So that's how she finds out from like media coverage of the case. So she's now nervous. She doesn't know what the security footage picked up. She doesn't know if they got a clear shot of her or not. So she invents this completely cockamamie story for the cops that she moved Bill's car as a revenge prank. Wow. (laughs) Oh, she's a clown now. (laughs) She's pranking. Pranking him. Because that's what everybody does after being beat up and needing to get a restraining out. Having a dryer sheet shoved in your mouth. Violently. You want to then play a prank on that person. So, yeah, this is what she tells her lover, Bradley Miller. He, like, ended up testifying that this is the story she told him. Melanie explained that her purpose in going was revenge. She planned to find his car and then move it, saying she was angry and upset that he had walked out on her and his kids. She had managed to find Bill's car, she told him, moving it to the Flamingo Motel parking lot. There had been two or three cell phones in the front seat, which she said she threw out. After moving the car, she forgot where she had left her Nissan Pathfinder, deciding to get a cab back to Woodbridge, 104 miles away. She told me that at that point it was late at night, said Dr. Miller. She was tired. She went to a casino and hailed a cab and asked to take it back to Woodbridge. According to Melanie, she had fallen asleep during the cab ride back. But when she got off at the Woodbridge train station, she felt refreshed and hailed an off-duty cab, taking it straight back to Atlantic City. Oh, my God. She did find her car, said Dr. Miller, and drove it back to the Red Roof Inn that night. Then Melanie told him about her second trip to Atlantic City. She also said she went down there on a Saturday at around midnight with her stepfather, said Dr. Miller. And again, they were going to see if the car had been moved, if they could find out where Billy was. She said they saw the car there but did not find Billy. The last thing she mentioned to me was that she went down to Atlantic City on May 18th, again, just to see if the car had been moved. Dr. Miller then asked her why she had not told him earlier. She told me that she didn't want me to be upset, he would later testify, that she didn't want me to think that she was going back to find Bill, bring him back, and rekindle the relationship. Dr. Miller thought the story was implausible and told her so, because it is. Oh, my God. Saying he didn't think anybody was going to believe her. He suggested they look for the two cab drivers who had driven her as a precaution. During the conversation, Melanie admitted reading the newspaper article about a man being seen on surveillance videotape moving Bill's car. I just asked her how they could confuse her with a male, he said. She said she didn't know, but for sure it was her that moved Bill's car. It's a ridiculous story. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Bill's friends and family were appalled when Bill's funeral was a cheap 20-minute affair. Melanie left the cemetery before they even put the urn with his ashes in the ground. Wow. She's ruthless. Ruthless. So, of course, the guests were horrified. And Sue Rice reports that, like, she watched her leave horrified and she peeled out of the parking lot with a bizarre smile on her face. One that Sue later described as a Cheshire cat grin. Ooh, I would never want that to be a description of anything I do. (laughs) Peeling out of a parking lot with a Cheshire cat grin. Oh, okay. From to have and to kill Sue describes a conversation she had with Melanie the following evening. 
The following night, after the Rices returned to Virginia Beach, they received a phone call from Melanie McGuire. She seemed upbeat, and after thanking John for his eulogy, asked what they had thought of the funeral. When Sue asked if she wanted her honest opinion, Melanie said that she did. It was the most despicable thing I've ever seen, Sue told her. 20 minutes. Bill deserves so much more as to how he was killed and how he was dismembered. Sue said that if Melanie had needed money to give Bill a decent funeral, she'd only had to ask Cindy, who would have gladly paid for it. And there was a little bit of sighing, she remembered. And then Melanie says, well, Sue, I just can't think of that right now. I'm a single mother. I put my husband in the grave and now I've got to get on with my life. Sue was astonished by her reaction, saying that they had to find out who murdered Bill. We need your help, said Sue. Come down here to Virginia Beach. Then Melanie repeated that she was way too busy now, saying that she had to go. She hung up the phone. That was the last time I ever spoke to her, said Sue. And when I put down the phone, I looked at John and I said, she did it. She's the one who did it. Sue seems smart. I like Sue. I yeah. like Sue and John a lot. Yeah. They seem like a really, really nice couple. They're interviewed a lot in this book about their relationship with Bill. A week after the funeral, Melanie put Bill's dream home, the one he had worked so hard to afford for his family, back on the market for $525,000, attempting to make a tidy profit of nearly $20,000. Wow. Mm -hmm. Shortly thereafter, New Jersey police began to wiretap Melanie, as well as searching the family townhouse and the new apartment she had moved into with her boys. Throughout the investigation, they, of course, discovered her affair with Dr. Brad, which created a strong motive. But they also discovered the rest of the set of Kenneth Cole reaction suitcases, <laughs> only missing the three that had been found with Bill's remains. Stop it. Melanie had given away. <laughs> yeah. Also, Melanie, like a week after his so-called disappearance, had already given away his clothes. So she gave the, these clothes to like one of her friend's cousins, but the guy hadn't taken them out of the garbage bags that she had given him. And they were the same garbage bags. They were forensically determined through a plastics expert that the garbage bags matched those that were found on Bill's body. They could determine that they were from the same role. Yep. So they also discovered that the weapon that she bought in Pennsylvania, like they found out because it was, she actually like registered the weapon to herself in Pennsylvania. I think that maybe she just didn't think they were going to search Pennsylvania. Jesus Christ. So they found the record and they went to the gun store and saw what she bought. They pulled the receipt for her and it was the same wad cutter bullets that were found in Bill were the same, the ones that she purchased. Wow. She did get rid of the gun, so they could never find the gun. She claims in the podcast that she bought the gun for Bill. I think she was setting up an alibi that he was scared of people because he owed money to them or something. And yeah, that the he, gambling motive. Yep, the gambling motive. And so that he asked her to go buy a gun because he wanted to protect himself. And then she gave him the gun and she never saw it again. So she says, I don't know where it is. I don't know. She goes, maybe it's in storage. She did give the authorities this storage unit information. And she's like, I don't know, maybe they lost it. She I'm says, I don't know where the gun so is. so curious about that podcast now because I'm like, how could they present this as her not being guilty? They do make some leaps. It's clear that like the one woman who's like leading the investigation met with Melanie in her job as a criminologist. Yeah. And believed her. And then the other host is kind of like, she asked questions like, Hmm, this doesn't seem very likely, like about the Red Lobster stuff, like yeah. that whole thing. The whole Delaware thing was so weird, you know? So there's one that's like a little skeptical, but there's one that's so clearly bought in and she kind of bends over backwards to like make excuses for Melanie okay. a lot. Additionally, they matched the medical grade towel that was found with the body parts to exactly the type of towel that RMA uses and supplies. Oh my God. And the syringe that was planted 
again was from RMA, you know? So embarrassing. Yeah. So Melanie, this is a lot. Like they say it's circumstantial evidence, but it's a lot of circumstantial evidence. And it's pretty good. So she's kind of boned. And so is the guy who was boning her. The police went hard after Brad Miller because, of course, they're assuming he's the accomplice. Yeah, you wrote up the script so, for her, supposedly. Mm -hmm, supposedly. So they completely upended his life. They could not nail him down as an accomplice, though. He had an alibi. He even offered to help in the investigation. But he did end up having to tell his wife. He got fired from the clinic. Wow. Which is good. But it was very like rich white guy fired because they say that they fired him, but they actually just transferred him to Michigan and he had to start as an employee, not a partner. Oh my God. Yeah. So it wasn't like a real firing even. It's like what they do to all the priests. Exactly. They just move him around like it never happens. Yep. So the police really leaned hard on both Dr. Bradley Miller and Jim Finn, who was Melanie's nursing school friend who had that huge crush on her. And he was also the one who was like emailing with her about guns and stuff to try to determine who could be her accomplice. But both men were eventually cleared after agreeing to secretly record Melanie during private conversations. Even in these conversations, they didn't get anything. Melanie was very careful to never give anything away, even when talking to those closest to her. But it was clear from the tapes that neither man was the co-conspirator. You can tell. Unless they're extremely good actors, like everybody involved, I don't think either one of those guys was the co-conspirator. But something that was really brutal was that Melanie, of course, did not know that these men were taping their conversations. And so she found out like later, like going into trial, that her lover, whom she was still sleeping with at the time, was recording her and giving that to the police. Ooh. I know. She said when she found out about the betrayal, she vomited. Well, I don't really feel that bad for her. I know. It's like you, you, you get what you get. Cut up here. your husband in your shower. Yeah, and then expect fidelity from your lover. The investigators felt at this point that they had enough evidence to arrest her, so they did just that on June 2nd, 2005, in the parking lot of her kids' daycare after she dropped oof, them off. Oof, I know. Oof. She said, at least they did me the service of having the teachers pull the curtain so my kids didn't see me get hauled away. Oof. After her arrest, Melanie's parents put up the collateral on their own house to pay the $75,000 bond to get Melanie out of jail. But already a daycare worker had called about reported concern over Melanie's youngest boy to New Jersey's Division of Youth and Family Services. And the boys had been temporarily given to Cindy Lagosh to raise. Wow. Yeah. So this completely pissed off Melanie and her parents because she's out on bail. So she could ostensibly be taking care of her kids. Also, don't you feel like her bail should be higher? It was $750,000, but you only have to pay 10% okay, of it go. to get them out. Yeah, go. exactly. So they only had to come up with 75 grand. Okay. So this really pissed off Melanie and her parents. And the Caparreros then made false anonymous calls to the police, suggesting that the Lagosh family included drug users and drug sellers. Oh, God. To attempt to regain custody of the boys. But the police saw right through it. And they were like, we're actually going to go after you guys for making falsified reports if you keep it up. Yeah, you're crazy. Yeah. It also, like, she's very sad on the podcast that she doesn't see her kids for eight months at this point. But I don't, I don't really feel bad for you because I don't think that when you murder the child's parents, you get to then hang out with them. No. Yeah, on the podcast, they're like, mm, what happened to innocent until proven guilty? She wasn't even convicted of a crime at this point. And I'm like, you know who else wasn't convicted of a crime? 
Josh Powell when he got to see his kids for a supervised visit. And how did that go? Yeah. Like, guys, if you haven't checked out Cold Season 1, it's exceptional. I'm not going to give away what happens, but in that case in specific is why I don't think people who are accused of murdering a parent should be allowed to have any sort of visitation with no. their children. That whole, there's like 30 episodes of that. It's like an insane, amazing podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure most of you guys have already heard it, but yeah, great podcast. Very deep dive into that case. Yeah. So I don't really feel bad for her at this point. And I, I think that's just, it, if she is innocent, yes, it totally sucks. She should have been able to see her kids, but the state has to protect children. So while Melanie is out on bail, she goes to RMA to pick up her belongings. And apparently her and Dr. Brad got it on right there again in his office. Melanie, honey, you should have different priorities right now. You're being charged with murder. Like you should be stopping by the office for a quickie. She's too busy giving that oral sex. She can't keep it together. (laughs) Giving that oral sex. Well, I guess a quickie wasn't slowing her down much because around this time, she also wrote a letter to the police claiming to be the real killer to throw off the investigation into her. But the cops determined it had been Melanie who wrote the letters and added to her charges two counts of hindering an investigation. Oh, my God. I know. She's a fucking mess. (laughs) She really is. Finally, nearly three years after Bill McGuire was brutally murdered, Melanie McGuire stood trial. The prosecution maintained that Melanie killed her husband, dismembered him, and dumped him in the Chesapeake Bay, most likely with an accomplice, and that the motivation was primarily to be with Dr. Bradley Miller while keeping the family's money and full custody of the kids. Ugh, gross. They presented the timeline and evidence that we already discussed, because basically what I read to you was exactly what they set forth. As well as more information on the damning trips Melanie made to Atlantic City and when she pinged in Delaware on her way back from disposing of the suitcases. Like, wouldn't you just take the transponder out of your car? Yeah, I mean, I guess she just didn't think it was going to hit from the glove compartment. She didn't think about a lot of things. No, she did not. (laughs) They had, I'm like, I'm like thinking for a second. I'm like, no, she did not. Because I'm trying to think of like all the things that she, she has so many excuses. Like if you listen to this podcast, Direct Appeal, she like has an answer for everything. It just, it doesn't really make sense. And, but she's yeah. very charming. She's very articulate. She's can be very convincing. So I can understand how people would feel for her in some ways. She can be a sympathetic type of character. However, when you step away with the information, it doesn't make rational sense, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they had lover Brad Miller take the stand and testify to beginning the affair when she was nine months pregnant and all of their many rendezvous. And he also had to admit to sleeping with her during and after the wiretapping, which is just so woof, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Also, the jury was nine women and three men, and women are way harsher critics. I'm sure that they didn't think very fondly of her starting an affair when she was nine months pregnant. No. With a married man. (laughs) With a married man who had children. With special needs. Yeah. The defense counters that Bill was a big-time gambler who most likely owed some mysterious bad guys money <laughs> in Atlantic City. And that this case guy. was the shadowy underworld of Atlantic City that he got involved with. This case, they said, was a tragic rush to judgment. Essentially, the authorities didn't actually investigate anyone else. They had latched onto Melanie and they got tunnel vision. So that's what they're saying. Okay. Her attorneys claimed that the prosecution had to create a mysterious accomplice because there was no way that petite Melanie would have been able to dismember and dispose of her 200-pound husband all by herself. 
Which, of course, I do kind of agree with that. Like, Same. if you're going to say that she had an accomplice, you have to tell us who the accomplice was, you know? Yep. Yeah. So they do imply that it was her stepfather, Michael Capararo, who was potentially her accomplice because, you know, he does go down to Atlantic City in the middle of night with her at one point, but they never had enough evidence to charge him. So that's okay. one potential. They also brought up the fact that after meticulous searching of the townhouse apartment, they could not find any blood whatsoever. So this is compelling evidence to me for her innocence is that they could not find a trace of blood. They went through the place with luminol. They took out the pipes. Like they literally removed the pipes from the apartment, wow. went through the plumbing, looking for evidence, and they found nothing. Wow. So if he was dismembered there, you'd think there would be something, some little speck of blood at least, you know? Yep. yep. So I think on that is a compelling piece of evidence for Melanie, you know? For sure. So again, that's a big problem with the prosecution story. They had a whole bunch of character witnesses for Melanie, clients and coworkers at the clinic who spoke of her empathy, intelligence, and talent. There was a ton of people that were like, she was the best nurse. She was so kind. Like there was people that um, spoke to like how she stopped by and like gave injections to somebody's sick child, like pro bono and stuff. And like, they were just saying she was a nice person. And they also did their best to trash Bill even forcing the poor woman who he had had a one-night stand with to testify. Oh, man. They did a serious character assassination on Bill. Like, they even tried to get Marcy, his first wife, in, but the judge was like, no, that's not relevant. Like, it's just his first wife who wanted to trash him. But they allowed the woman that he had the one-night stand with to come on, and this poor woman was so mortified and so embarrassed imagine having a regrettable one night stand and then you have to go on trial and talk all about it while somebody questions you no that's horrid I know and she was trying to say she was like he was a really nice guy and the defense attorney's like a nice guy who cheats on his wife and she's like I guess not I don't know and and she like burst into tears as soon as she got off the stand oh my god oh my god I know the defense also argued that Melanie hadn't been home for three days after the closing and the supposed fight with Bill. So if it was possible that Bill was murdered in their home, why is it not possible that the dangerous men Bill potentially owed gambling money could have broken in and killed him while Melanie and the boys were elsewhere? So to this, the prosecution is like, no. So ADA Patty Prezioso in her closing said, if a stranger breaks into a house and efficiently kills the occupant, there's no reason to move the body. The murderer can leave it right there. The murderer doesn't have to move the body because the murderer wasn't supposed to be in the house. The murderer only needs to leave and the murderer's identity remains a secret. Not the case when the murderer is the wife of the victim. Yeah. She yeah. must move the body so that the illusion is created that the murderer is someone else. Yeah. She needs to put the body in a place where it could open up speculation that it could have been someone else and that he could have conceivably gone there. She also must create the illusion that he is still alive and she was behaving as if she believed he was still alive. The defendant did all of this. Yeah. Which if his body parts hadn't been floating around, she would have gotten away with it. Yeah. Because she could have said, I mean, everybody knew he was a big gambler. He loved Atlantic City. They were having marital problems. She could potentially say, I don't know where he went. He just disappeared. And it's so hard to charge anyone with murder if you don't have a body. Yep. So, yeah, which is a great point. Melanie did not end up testifying on her own behalf, on the advice of her attorneys. And this is something that she later talks about extremely regretting. She feels like the jury didn't get to hear her side of things, but she followed their advice. After nearly 14 hours of deliberation, the nine-woman, three-man jury found Melanie McGuire guilty of murder. All right. 
They also hit her up with some other charges. She was also found guilty of possession of a firearm for unlawful purposes, desecrating human remains, and perjury. Whoa. Yep. The judge sentenced her to life in prison. She will be eligible for parole when she's 101 years old. Holy shit. That's crazy. Holy shit. She's not going to make it to 101. Even if you do, like, (laughs) What, What is life left for you? You step outside, you have a heart attack. (laughs) the freedom shocks you yeah exactly oh god yep so cindy lagosh bill's sister was awarded custody of bill and melanie's young sons who have since grown into young men and melanie has had no contact with them since her 2007 trial okay good because the boys don't want to talk to her you know so good for them at this point melanie has exhausted her appeals they all you know, wouldn't give her another trial. And her last hope for exoneration is the podcast Direct Appeal with professors Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. And like I said, the hosts believe that she was wrongfully convicted. However, prosecuting attorney on the case, Patty Prezioso, disagrees, saying, there are times when podcasts and media can shine a light on certain cases where the government was not right. This is not one of the cases, says Prezioso. My job is not to convince the world. My job is to convince the jury. I believe the evidence presented to the jury told the jury what happened. And also it is telling that she chose not to participate in the podcast. None of the juries participated in the podcast, nor did any of Bill's friends or family. So it's a very lopsided approach. Yeah. And I mean, to their credit, they talk about how they tried. They reached out to all of these people and really, really worked very hard to try to get them on the podcast. They just declined. Do you want to though? If somebody told me that they were going back and digging up a case to free the person that killed my brother, my son, my best friend, I would be like, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely understand why they wouldn't participate. I do recommend the podcast guys because it's a very deep dive. If you're interested in this case, they went through so many more details than I could possibly get into and keep this podcast under two hours, you know, but it's a little baffling to some people. Like I was reading the reviews and people were like, this is a very biased podcast, you know, but a lot of people believe that she was innocent. I think it was like very 50 50 on the reviews. Like people were like, I believe 100% she was wrongfully convicted. Thank you for bringing light to wow. this case, you know? Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think I know where you stand, Andy. Guilty. <laughs> yeah. You, you called it right from the beginning. <laughs> I do too. I think she's guilty. And I do think that even if she did not fire the gun or she wasn't even the person who did the dismembering, I believe she had a hand in it no matter what. There was no one else who wanted this guy dead. Yeah. There's way too many pieces. Too many pieces. There's too many coincidences. There's too much evidence against her. I don't believe it. And then I think then you get into a gray area with that podcast where you're like, if you are actually highlighting somebody who's wrongfully convicted, that's very, very honorable. But if you're not, you're just giving the killer a voice when the victim has none. Yeah. So it's a dangerous road to walk on, you know? Yeah. Okay, well, that is the story of Melanie McGuire, Bill McGuire, and the body parts in the suitcase. If you liked this story, please, please, please give us a review. Let us know that you like it. We really had a couple funny ones recently that made us giggle. So we love it. We read it. We pass it around. We take whatever your criticism is to heart, and we delight in it when you guys like us. (laughs) In conclusion... Love a red lobster, but if you're in New York City, don't eat at a lobster in Times Square. I beg you. Another tip is 
Maybe don't use part of your Kenneth Cole collection to put body parts of your dismembered partner in? <laughs> no. First of all, those are nice suitcases. So you just basically threw them away. But also, if you're going to do that, at least like maybe get rid of the other ones, the Kenneth matching Co- set. Kenneth Cole deserves better. Kenneth Cole does deserve better. And so did Bill McGuire, goddammit. Absolutely. Yes. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so nobody ends up in a Kenneth Cole suitcase. Thank Bye. you guys so much for listening. Bye. Bye.